Hi, I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1776. Hello and welcome to Born of Wonder. I'm Katie Marquette, and on this podcast, we explore anything and everything that inspires wonder and awe in the world. Uh, Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about this concept of the Nordic theory of love and what that is and what sort of social and economic policies that results in. Uh, I started the podcast today with uh, the Declaration of Independence with that famous quote we all know, inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This was such a bold, bold claim at the time. And of course, we all know that uh, we have failed to live up to these ideals and that certainly Uh, The writers of the Declaration of Independence were failing to live up to these ideals, but ideals nonetheless that uh, all of us Americans hold dear, we should hold dear, and we should also recognize that it was really the example of the United States that have made so many other democracies and other forms of government elsewhere in the world uh, possible. You know, this was such such a radical experiment here in the United States to say that human beings are not defined by wealth or rank or lineage, but that they just by virtue of being alive, by virtue of being a human being uh, created by God, that they are are entitled to rights. This was a completely radical idea. And I'm afraid that that today in the United States, we have drifted away from these ideals, that we don't act like we are all created equal. And certainly, what do we believe about a society if we say that we are all created equal? What sort of policies should be in place, economic and otherwise, that should uh, should allow for equal opportunity, equal opportunity to flourish, to pursue the American dream? Um, yeah, so I, I know it's a bit of a, a I guess, a heavier topic, but I, I think it's going to be inspiring because I found this book called The Nordic Theory of Everything in Search of a Better Life by Anu Parchanin to be incredibly inspiring. Um, I think sometimes we get caught in certain modes of thinking uh, and we, we need to be sort of, you know, jolted out of them a bit. We assume certain things are normal and in other parts of the world, they are not normal. So it's just helpful. It's just helpful to occupy uh, the the mentality of another culture sometimes to see what is possible, especially here we are 2024 an election year, trying to figure out what to do. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to stay above the fray above, you know, I really like really seriously, I truly mean whatever political background you are from, you are more than welcome here. I have held almost every political position at one point or another in my life. At different points, I have identified as very, very liberal. I have identified as very, very conservative. And 
uh, I find myself um, happily politically homeless now, but but I just want to say that I understand where you're coming from, no matter where you're coming from. So I completely get it. Uh, but you know, a big goal of this podcast is for us to uh, to look at things with a sense of optimism, with a sense of hope. And I do think uh, it sounds almost cliche now. You know, you see the rankings all the time, and Finland yet again in the World Happiness Report ranked number one again in 2023, uh, along with many of the other Nordic countries followed closely behind. And we've all seen these reports about Nordic societies and their policies and how high they rank on these well-being indexes and things like that. And of course, there has been criticism of that. You know, how accurate are these happiness rankings? What can we trust about them? Um, there's even the thought of, are these people just being polite? There might be something to that. You're going to hear about that uh, later on today. But, um, you know, there there's clearly something going on here that I think is at the very least worth learning about. You may you may decide that uh, you disagree with with the way those policies are playing out. But I think I think that some of our assumptions, some of the assumptions I had about certain things about how healthcare works, for instance, or uh, family leave, maternity leave, how this would work. Some of the ideas that I thought I understood, uh, I realized I didn't when I read the book, and even more so when I got the chance to talk to Anu. And I was so thrilled that she took the time to talk to talk with me. Uh, I've said it before, but one of my favorite things about having a podcast is I have a great reason to just uh, e- email uh, writers and other people I admire and say, do you have the time to talk to me? And uh, usually they say yes, and what a gift that is. So that's so great. I, I was so thrilled to talk to her. And uh, she is a, a Finnish journalist. She lived in the United States for 10 years. She's married to an American and has since moved back to Finland. Uh, she wrote the book while she was still here in the United States and was being sort of uh, very confused by a lot of things in the U.S., how how people lived here, um, certain policies that were very confusing, especially in regard to health care and other things like that. And she wrote the book just sort of definitely... Um, focusing on the positive aspects of Nordic society. And we do push a little bit at the end um, on some of some of the things that Nordic societies could learn from the U.S. And there are are things, you know, there are things that, that definitely Nordic societies could learn from the United States. So uh, I just hope that this uh, conversation uh, expands your mind. It, it expanded mine and it's inspired me. I want to, you know, I want things to be better in the U.S. I think that they're not great for a lot of people. And uh, even though I don't necessarily think the solution is to just take Nordic society and supplant it here in the U.S., we have very different ideologies. We have different uh, a different culture with different values. But I think that there's a lot of overlap, um, and there should be a lot of overlap in the way that we think here about equality of opportunity, about certain inalienable human rights, uh, which in my mind should include things like healthcare and uh, family leave and all these things. So. I think that uh, I will just stop there with the introduction and just let you enjoy this conversation with Anu. I just want to remind you that you can find me online at bornofwonder.com. Head on over to Substack, link in the show notes. I'm writing away over there as always. And I would love for you to join me in Ireland in October uh, 2024. If you like having these kind of debates, these kind of discussions, we're going to be doing plenty of that. We're going to hang out in pubs and listen to great fiddle music and go uh, go see sheep herding demonstrations and hike St. Patrick's Mountain and everything like that. We're coming up on March here. It's almost St. Patrick's Day. It's time to sign up. I'm just telling you this is your sign. It's it's time for you to sign up and head on over to Ireland. So 
I hope you can join us. I really do. So I'm going to put that link in the show notes as well. But without further ado, let's just hop into the conversation. And on this episode in particular, I would love to hear your feedback. I would love to know your thoughts. Uh, email me anytime, marquettekady at gmail.com. Okay, let's get going on this conversation with Anu Parchanen. So today on the podcast, I am so thrilled to be joined by Anu Parchanen, the author of The Nordic Theory of Everything, which is a book I can't stop talking about. So everybody knows that I, I, I'm a huge fan of hers and I'm so excited to dive into, into this book and what we can learn from Nordic societies and uh, yeah, just pick her brain. So I'm so thrilled you could take the time with you. Thank you for talking to me. Hi, very nice to be here. Thank you for reading the book. Of course. So can you just maybe give a little bit of an introduction to yourself? Um, The book was published in 2016, I believe. So it's been a bit of a time since you wrote that book. So what made you write the book? What's your background and what have you been doing since then? Yeah, I um, well, I have to go a little bit um, back in time. I um, moved to the United States in 2008. Uh, before that, I had always lived my life in Finland. I had uh, spent um, exchange student year in Australia in high school, and then I spent one year uh, in Paris, France during college. But otherwise, I had quite happily lived in Finland, and I wasn't particularly planning to move anywhere. But then I had met my now husband in the United States in a conference. And so for a few years, we were trying to figure out what to do. He was living in the United States and I was living in Finland. And eventually uh, we decided that I was going to move to, um, to the U.S. And uh, I was very excited by it. Of course, once the final decision was made, everybody from Europe wants to live in one of the great American cities, go to New York City or, or Los Angeles or San Francisco or those places that are so um, magical for us. And so I did move to New York City. And then quite soon after I moved to New York City, I started feeling very um, anxious about various things in life. And this was a surprise to me because in Finland, I had always thought of myself as a fairly competent person. So that's in the end why I decided to write the book. I was a working journalist. And um, the more I thought about my experiences in the U.S., the more I started to think that maybe there's something that I could write about that it was interesting to me personally, but it seemed to be interesting to people around me as well. Mm-hmm. And so I lived in the U.S. for 10 years and now I'm back in Finland. So I'm sitting in Helsinki, Finland, and I have been back in Finland for five years now with my American husband who moved here with me and, and our six-year-old daughter who was born in the U.S. So she was one when we left the U.S. for Finland. Gotcha. So, so you alluded to this a little bit already. So finished married to an American, moved to the U.S., and you were surprised. There were some things that struck you as surprising. So can you just tell us a little bit about those some initial experiences in the U.S.? Yeah, uh, there were the things that are sort of small things, like, like trying to get a um, cable subscription and not being able to understand how the pricing works and not being able to get a clear answer when I was trying to talk to the people on the phone and there was the getting a credit card and trying to understand the terms and conditions and so on. And so at first I sort of thought that this is just me because I was an immigrant and you're in a new country and you don't really know how anything works. It's understandable that you're confused. But then I started to try to get, for example, health insurance and 
I remember when I first uh, was looking at the plans, I was a freelancer and I, I had gotten my health insurance during my American years through various setups. But at the time, I think it was Freelancers Union and, and I would get this huge booklet that had all the different plans. And then I was mm. trying to understand the plans and what should I choose? And I was actually trying to read it. And then I started asking Americans that I know that, well, how on earth can you figure this out? Like, how do you know what kind of plan to get? And everybody was like, oh, you don't. I don't know. My employer gives me something and I just take it and I hope that it's good. And so slowly I started to think that, oh, it's not just me. The, the Americans around me were also um, baffled and anxious and confused. And many, of course, had decided that there's no way to find out uh, for sure, for example, about health insurance. So you just kind of have to go with it and hope that it's okay. But all this for me was new because I had never had to think about, for example, health insurance plans in Finland in my life uh, before. And it wasn't so easy for me to shrug off. I felt very... Um, like worried for my basic security that that what is this that I walk around without knowing how much my care would cost if I was hit by a car and so the more I thought about it the more I had those experiences and especially the more I spoke with um, people that I got to know over the years and and over time and realized that to them too this is very difficult to navigate um, American society and those sort of basic services that I had in Finland, thought of just sort of self-evident that they're there for you, okay, and then you focus on your life. And all of a sudden, it felt like I really had to spend a lot of time and, and effort to try to arrange these things. Yeah, I think reading your book, it sort of felt like I there were a lot of things I didn't realize wasn't so normal in other countries to just worry about. I think a lot of Americans just assume that you'll have to you know, spend a lot of time like trying to figure out your taxes or trying to figure out your health insurance. And that's not necessarily the, the norm in other places around the world. So, yeah, I'm, I think having an outsider voice like that can be very important for us realizing what is and isn't normal potentially. Um, and we'll get into some of the specific policies that you already alluded to. But I wanted to start just with this basic concept that you lay out early in the book called the Nordic theory of love. So could you just give us an overview of what you mean by that phrase? Because I think it's important that we understand the cultural values and underpinnings that drive many of the social and economic policies in Nordic countries to sort of understand how this even works. Yeah, this was something that I, uh, I hadn't thought of so clearly before moving to the U.S. When I moved to the U.S., I also sort of was trying to understand the relationships that people have with one another and how it all works, because a lot of them, the social policies determine our relationships in many ways. If you take health insurance, for example, that in the United States, often it is one person in the family whose who's employer offers the health insurance plan and the whole family is on that plan. And so then that starts to create these, what to me were sort of odd dependencies. When I first got my health insurance, for example, through my um, now husband's work, I couldn't kind of wrap my head around it. I was thinking that, okay, so now if I get cancer, I'm dependent on my husband's employer. If my husband decides to quit his job or decides to divorce me, all of a sudden I'm out of cancer care. And to me, that was also like, what is the logic in this and how could this be? Because this is not the case in a Nordic country. And so these were the kinds of um, 
things I was trying to think about in relationships, when I, my own relationship and the relationships around me. And the more I thought about it, the more baffled again I was until I ran into this book by two Swedish academics who had been thinking exactly the same things before. And, and when I read what they were writing about the U.S. and the Nordic countries and thinking about relationships and society, I immediately thought that, yes, exactly, this, this explains what I've been trying to put my finger on. And so they actually had come up with this idea of the Nordic theory of love. They, they called it the Swedish theory of love, but because I'm from Finland, which is the mm -hmm. neighboring country to Sweden, and I recognized it so clearly and the, the cultures are many in many ways similar in both countries, I just sort of interviewed them and took that and in the book called it the Nordic theory of love. But the idea is that in the Nordic countries, people think that authentic love and friendship are really only possible between individuals who are independent and equal, that you should not have uh, financial dependencies or other very fundamental dependencies in relationships. Because if you are dependent on someone for your survival, for example, it's very hard to be authentic and honest with that person, truly. And so all of Nordic society, really all the structures and social services have been built to help each and every individual to be independent in their relationships, even within family. And I know that this often to Americans can sound terrible because obviously family is intertwined and people love one another and family is a unit that works together. And I agree. I think most Nordics would agree that they want their family to share and arrange their lives in a way that is good for everyone. But there is this fundamental thinking that it is the government's job to provide some basic services that everybody needs to survive and reach their full potential. And so this applies to uh, husbands and wives or, or partners in a relationship, but also to parents and children or elderly parents and their adult children. So some basic services and support are given by the government to every, each and every individual so that they can also have some independence within those relationships. And then the theory, and what I would say also pra practice, is that in the end, family can be even strengthened because there aren't these uh, difficult power dynamics that come with if somebody has to be financially, for example, completely dependent on, on the other person. Yeah, and there's a quote that uh, I think sums up what you're saying from the book. You said, American society forced people into situations that warped some of their most fundamental relationships. And I think, you know, that's exactly what you're saying is like, if you're completely dependent on somebody, even if it's your spouse, I mean, for healthcare or something, I mean, if something were to go wrong in that relationship, and then you feel trapped in a very bad situation. Um, and even like childcare, there's a lot of resentment that can happen between family members if you're relying on your sister or your grandparent for childcare in a way that's like a necessity and not just like families helping each other out. It can certainly create, I think, complicated, uh, to say, you know, lightly situations. So, and yeah, childcare, I think actually is a great point to start because I think that this, it'll speak to a lot of what we have been already alluding to. So this is just, the maternity leave things was just crazy to me. This was just like, I was just texting friends as I was reading. I was like, can you believe this is happening in other countries? Because as uh, most people know, there is no official maternity leave policy in the U.S. Uh, there are some states, um, my state included, that are starting to enforce um, some some parental leave policies, family leave policies. But 
nationwide, there is no obligation to provide maternity leave, family leave. So can you just introduce us? I know it's different in different Nordic countries, so maybe we can just start with Finland, but um, what you know best, the family leave maternity policy in Finland and how you think that affects family culture and stability. Yeah, so overall, it is true that they vary a little bit by uh, different Nordic countries, and I look into them a little bit in the book, but overall, all Nordic countries offer paid parental leave to every parent of a child. It's not dependent on on their employer's goodwill or, or the employer's size or anything like that. Every parent has a right to paid parental leave. Or I think in the Nordics, how we think about it is more that every child has a right to a parent who is able to be there and take care of them. A lot of the Nordic thinking also, especially in family policy, starts with the child's right, that a child has a right to parents who can be present and the child has a right to daycare and, and early childhood education and the child has a right to free education. But so as to paid parental leave, actually it has changed a little in Finland since the book. It has gotten longer and better, I would say. <laughs> so currently in Finland, so every family in Finland, regardless of their employer, has the right to about 15 months of paid parental leave. So a year and three months about. And at the level of Finnish median salary, the payments amount to usually about 70% of the leave taker's usual income. And the pay is furnished through taxes, basically managed by Finnish social security systems. So it is not paid by the employer. Um, the employers might top it off somehow and so on. But basically all employers have to pay in an insurance fund and then all the parental payments are paid through that. And I think this is an important point because I think it is true that it is difficult for employers alone to cover pay while people are in parental leave. So this sort of equalizes it throughout the system. But so all families have 15 months of paid parental leave. And right now in Finland, typically the birth parents get a pregnancy leave of about six weeks. So that's usually when they start their paid parental leave before the child is born. And then after the child is born, both parents have about four months that is assigned to them. So you could call this a daddy-only leave because it is... The reason why it is stipulated that it is split between the parents, it's basically because um, the effort is made to get men to take more parental leave. They do in Nordic countries, much more so than in the U.S., but this is the government's way sort of try to push it for just equality in the family and also to have the value of both parents actually be able to take care of their child. All of this leave can be taken in various sort of installments until the child turns two. And then after that, you can still stay home without losing your job until the child turns three. But then you get a very small stipend. It's not anymore 70% of your salary. But so essentially, you can stay home for three years with your child without losing your job. And everybody has the same right. Gotcha. So I think a lot of people hear this and they're like, how do businesses keep going? I mean, you know, you have an if people are taking these lengthy maternity leaves and what if maybe you have a child, you stay home for two and a half years, then maybe you have a second child, then you're up again. Like, I mean, how does this, I think the American mind is just like, how would productivity continue under these circumstances? <laughs> well, it's a good question. I mean, it is true that it is possible if you, mm -hmm. if you have several children to stay home for a really long time. 
But overall, I think mostly parents, I'd say overall, probably women take a little bit less than a year off because they're nursing and then mm -hmm. the fathers typically take off another six months or so. Mm -hmm. And then they come back to work. And then if they have another child, then they're off again. And for example, right now I work in a consulting company. So I work in communications consulting. I'm not full-time journalist right now. And it's a pretty um, busy, high-level business, money-oriented work. And people are just coming and going all the time, even the managing directors, the executives. And I think uh, we're so used to it that it doesn't seem a problem anymore. Because it's just sort of this rolling thing where somebody goes off on their leave, another person comes back. And their assignments, of course, because they're gone for a year, are divided among other people. Or somebody else is hired for that year, for example, to take their position. So it's not that, I think in the U.S. it often happens that if somebody's away for three months, uh, the work is not really assigned to anyone or the colleagues just have to try to take care of it. And uh, in Finland, because the leaves are longer, it is easier for the employers to plan also or hire someone or use it as a, a way to try out different people within the company in different positions and help people also grow into new positions without hiring new people. So once you kind of get used to it and have it set up, it's really not a problem at all. It's just so normalized that it doesn't seem problematic at all. And in our company too, I mean, men, the managing director right now is, is on his second parental leave while I've stayed with the company. So it's quite common and people are used to it. So it's not, it doesn't seem to be a big deal. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I do think that is sort of an overarching theme of what you wrote about is that when something becomes a cultural norm, it just, you just kind of figure it out. <laughs> um, so if every yeah. business is doing this, then it, then you just, that's just the way businesses run. So I think that. And having that sort of universal model is so important. And I think what's so difficult to talk about in the U.S. because we have, you know, such a diverse culture, but we can we can talk a little bit more about that later. But I wanted to stay on the, the kids for a minute. Um, you devote a lot of time to discussing education and the various schooling models in Nordic countries. And I should mention here that all schooling, including college, medical school is free and how that compares to the U.S. school system, which as various studies and reports confirm is really not doing very well. So what aspects of the Nordic system do you think are the key aspects to its success? And I know these rankings are always fluctuating, too. So, I mean, it, it, how is the Nordic system doing school wise? I know that it kind of dropped a little bit. And um, but I think maybe sort of some of the foundational elements you, you talk about are still at play here. Yeah, I definitely think that um, the education system in Finland, it varies a little bit in different Nordic countries, but in Finland, certainly it works well. It is true that some of the international surveys, Finland at some point became very famous for doing extremely well. The 15-year-olds in Finnish schools uh, did very well in international comparisons. Now the results have dropped somewhat, but Finland's still in the top 10 or whatnot, so it's not so dramatic. But I think from Finnish perspective, in a way, focusing on these comparisons is almost like antithesis of the whole way the system is meant to work or, or the philosophy that it's built on. Finland went through this period already in the 1970s of trying to, we, we used to have a school system that was quite unequal at the time, that there was a 
all children could go to school. Like my grandmother, for example, went to school for six years. And then after that, you had to pay. And so she never was able to continue her education. And so this was um, basically the system that they tried to change. And it was a long debate, like it is in America. It wasn't obvious to Finns what, what would be the best possible uh, solution. And there were a lot of discussion over similar topics that you can hear in the U.S. as well, that should we focus on the talented kids and should we allow for families to have different types of schools and education and so on and choice. Um, but in the end, in Finland, they instituted um, an equal system for all children. So there's no private schools in Finland practically whatsoever. There are some independent schools but even they are regulated by, by the government, so they can't charge. The, the tuition fees are very minor, and they have to, in some ways, follow the national curriculum. So in the end, all kids in Finland basically go to similar public school. But then, of course, the key to the reform was that they started also demanding that all teachers have a mm -hmm. master's degree in education, and all the teachers' schools in Finland are also standardized. I think one of the problems in the U.S. is that there are in different states and cities, there's so many different ways of becoming certified as a teacher that the teachers, you know, their skills and their background can really vary mm -hmm. and, and parents might not trust so much the, the schools. Whereas in Finland, it is standard. The teacher education is also so standardized that in every school, you know that the teachers have the same high level education. And I think this has been one key that has allowed parents to feel like, like these public schools serve their children well. Then there's, of course, questions of, of funding, for example, that in the U.S., the schools are funded through property taxes it automatically sort of creates inequalities between the schools. Whereas in Finland, the funding is also equalized. And in fact, the schools get more money if, um, for example, in the school district, there's more unemployment or more immigrants and so on. So they try to um, fund more schools that might, where the students might have more challenges. And I think from parents' perspective, this gives you a sense of a sense of calm. You don't have to be so anxious about it. Usually the closest school is good. It's fine. It doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to start visiting different schools. You don't have to start saving for tuition. You don't have to worry whether your child is going to be left behind because the school is not top-notch. So in that sense, I think the key to the Finnish thinking about schools is that we're not really looking for excellence per se. We're looking for equality and then, of course, um, excellent schools for all children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think that is a bit of a cultural difference. I think that what people don't realize is that the choices that maybe they can make for their children and their family are very inaccessible to a huge portion of the U.S. population. I mean, even people who maybe say, well, I want to stay home with my kids. Well, that's great. But a lot of people don't even have that option. You know, it wouldn't even be a choice for them, not to mention if they want to or not. But like you just you just couldn't um, you couldn't afford to. And then what do you do in those those situations? And if you live like you say, I mean, it's just crazy that school education is tied to property tax. I mean, even that we have conversations of like, oh, I'm going to move into a good school zone, like I'm going to get into this school zone, I have to be able to afford the house, get into the good school zone so that I'm not driving 40 minutes to the private school. I mean, it's like, um, you know, my older daughter is almost three and we already have to start visiting schools. I mean, she goes part time to preschool already, but like I, we're already on lists and, you know, things to discuss. It's cra it's crazy, you know, and it's only going to get more 
difficult as she gets older. And I think that just sort of that baseline accessibility is really important to acknowledge. Uh, and that's unbelievably true when we talk about healthcare, which again is free. And so there's a lot of assumptions Americans make, myself included, uh, about socialized medicine. When you hear that, you say, okay, well, that sounds great, but you know, what are you giving up for this? Maybe you'll be in a waiting room forever. You're not going to be able to pick your doctor. Um, this is, you know, it's not worth it, basically. Like, yeah, it's not great, the, the, the health insurance situation here, but at least we have X, Y, Z. But you you pick apart uh, a few of these assumptions that people have. Are there a few that maybe you'd want to address some concerns that people commonly have? Well, I guess the first things I would say that I guess we don't think of it as socialized medicine. I think Americans, understandably, when they hear that, they might think about the Soviet Union or, right, or Venezuela right. or some place yeah. where, you know, it, it's terrible and it's not high quality. And, and for the book, I looked at a lot of international comparisons where they try to compare healthcare systems. And it's, of course, very difficult because populations are different and people's health is different and, mm -hmm. and so on. So it's very hard to say what is the result of a healthcare system, what kinds of results um, and what are other results in a, in a society or other reasons why you might have different health outcomes. But they do try to compare these things, um, for example, by comparing various cancer survival rates after diagnosis. And so that tries to look into how much the care that you're getting, uh, how good is it after diagnosis. And, and so the Nordic countries, the U.S. does often very well on this, of course, and, and the Nordic countries do as well. So, so they're not at all behind the U.S. So the first thing I would say that, that the quality of care is actually very good in international comparisons in the Nordic countries. So the way the system works in Finland is that we have a public health care system that means that the doctors are employed by the city or the municipality or some by the government, just like the police and firemen are in the U.S. So it's essentially a similar system than, uh, than firemen or, or police in the U.S that they are employed by the city and then they work in hospitals or healthcare centers and uh, all uh, residents of Finland are automatically insured. We don't buy a separate health insurance. It's just sort of, again, uh, we pay for it in our payroll taxes and it goes into a fund. And then we go to the doctor and sometimes there's a copay, maybe 20 euros or so on, but otherwise it's free after that course we pay for it in our taxes everybody pays for it somehow but we don't pay in insurance payments we don't choose our insurance plans and so on and I know in the U.S. of course I think it's a very good question to ask like what kind of care do I want for my family and, and uh, who is the doctor that takes care of me because these are really important personal um, powerful situations where of course you want to be on the same page with the doctor for example or trust them I'd say that it is true that in practice, probably you can't maybe choose your doctor as, well, it's a difficult question, but I'd say that in, on top of the public care system, we have private doctors as well. So you can always go to a private doctor and pay for it if you want. And typically the employer offers you also access to a private doctor to get your cold checked out or something. It's not a health insurance like in America. We don't have our cancer taken care of by the doctor that our employer would pay for. But it's like a little bit of an extra. So there's plenty of options and choices for you mm -hmm. in the Finnish system as well. 
I was hesitating about the doctor question because the Finnish hospitals, for example, work quite differently from the U.S. There's doctors who work at the hospital. And if you have an accident and you go to the hospital, it's not your personal doctor who comes to look after you at the hospital. It's just the doctors who are there. So then, of course, it's a question who happens to be on call at the time. But in any case, uh, you have several options. You, you can go to different doctors. And I myself, for example, use all of these for our child. We typically just go to the public health clinic that is close by. For myself, I often use the doctor that my employer offers. And then sometimes if it's after hours and our child has gotten sick or we need to see a doctor at nine o'clock in the evening, we might go to the private doctor because we know that it's fast and pay for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of options and the quality is still good. And I would say that um, the U.S. is the only country in the world who functions the way the American healthcare does. I mean, all European countries have some form of what Americans might consider socialized medicine. Of course, there's so many different ways of arranging a healthcare system. Yes. And in Europe, many countries have different types of systems, but nobody really has the kind uh, that the U.S. has. And the one big, great benefit of having some sort of system that is organized and regulated by the government is that it is just impossible for an individual to really shop for healthcare. Mm. I mean, I would imagine every American knows this. It's not like buying jeans. You, you cannot, in advance, compare different doctors or surgeons or hospitals. You can try, but you can't really get the price and the quality and, and you don't know how your illness is going to develop. It is impossible. And in the U.S., very expensive. So it adds this huge burden once you get sick that you have to start worrying and understanding these different options and is your doctor you know in the network and and how does it all work which in the nordics you don't have to worry about mm -hmm. at all then you you go to the hospital and doctor and there's no bills coming your way ever or they're very minor and i would say that to me as well when i had my child in the u.s mm -hmm. um this was, it was just astonishing to me. I, I wasn't even sick. The pregnancy was fine, but the number of, you know, bills and paperwork mm -hmm. for every minor thing that they did or monitored me or something that were coming in and trying to understand, like, have I been billed twice or is this okay? And then the doctor sends me to all these different tests and I'm wondering, is this really necessary? Like I had to pay for this. It's not included in my insurance. Should I go? I can't make that decision. I'm not a doctor. So all of that seemed to me to add extra stress, even though I wasn't really sick yet at all. And right. then if you are really sick, of course, people know what that means in the U.S. It's a huge burden. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, for all of our talk of like, oh, I want to be able to pick my doctor. I don't want to have to wait a long time. We all know in practice, I mean, most of the time I can't even pick my doctor anyway. You know, like it takes a long time to get an appointment with your GP as it is. Maybe you'll just go to whoever's on call. When I had my kids, I had the doctor that was on call when I went to the hospital when they were born. Yeah. I mean, it's like, that's the way, yeah. that's the way it is. So, I mean, it's really not even that different. Um, and I think a point you made in the book was that um, the way our insurance policies work is it often puts the insurance sort of in this defensive position and the doctor is spending a lot of time on the phone trying to negotiate, you know, away from spending time with their patients. And they can't really tell you the price of a test beforehand because who knows if insurance will cover it. And insurance is basically waiting for whether or not you're going to 
make a fuss over something or not, you know, I, you know, to see basically how much they can charge you, which is, I think, just sort of an across the board um, thing in the U.S. It's just true is that we have to be in a very proactive, defensive position all the time. We have to be advocating for ourselves because otherwise you're going to be charged for it. But yeah, we could go on and on about healthcare, but I just encourage everybody to read the book to get into more depth. But um, all these policies, they sound amazing. And I think a lot of people will read them or talk about them and say, you know what, this sounds great. Um, I'm glad it works in a homogenous small country. But here in the U.S. with our military budget, not to mention how people would react to a tax <laughs> taxation level at this, you know, it just wouldn't work. Um what would you say to those comments? Well, I think it is true that it is difficult. Of course it is. It's always very difficult to change the system that people are used to. And I think it is true that it is easier to create these kind of uh, standardized systems uh, for everyone in a society that is homogenous because people tend to then... Um, it is true that people might not want to contribute to somebody's health insurance, for example, who they feel is different from them or so on. This is sort of real. But then on the other, psychologically, I think real. But then if you think in practical terms of how to arrange such care, the United States has systems that are statewide and the states are so much bigger than Finland. Finland has 5 million people and the biggest states in the US, of course, most of the states are bigger than, than Finland by population. And so, and there's systems like social security system or other that are unified nationwide. So I really don't think it would be impossible to arrange it regardless of the size of the country. But like you're saying, it is a different um, sort of mentality also to understand that, of course, you would pay for it in your taxes. We tend to pay higher taxes than Americans do. Um, not by as much as Americans tend to think. Uh, this is also the question in the U.S. that since it varies so much by the state and the city and where you live, how high your taxes are. For me in New York City, for example, the taxes were, my income taxes were just as high as they are in Finland. They really were because there's the state tax and there's the city tax and then the, the federal tax. But then on the other hand, in the Nordic countries and in Finland, uh, we do have higher taxes on consumption, for example, gas and so on. So I think the, the question is that you pay for everything in one way or another, of course. And then you have to think about, well, what kind of a system is the most efficient way of arranging a service and paying for it? And is it the most efficient way that every American tries to figure out a service as complicated as health insurance or health care for themselves and pay for it? for themselves and then part of the people are not paying at all because they just cannot afford it. And then when they get sick, they have to go to the hospital and then maybe the host they can't pay the hospital. Well, then the insurance payments will go eventually up. It's just sort of a chain of events. And if you look at how much Americans spent on healthcare as a nation compared to other countries, it is just astonishingly more than any other country when you look at the numbers. And so then, you're, then the answer is that, of course, it's fine to pay a lot if you get the best care in the world, if you really get what you pay for. But then if you look at the healthcare results in the U.S., the maternal mortality rates are terrible compared to many other countries. And there are many health outcomes 
that are actually terrible in the U.S. compared to other countries. Um, in the book, I talk about how if you have a very some sort of esoteric disease like Ebola, you definitely want to be in the U.S. because many of the university hospitals are absolutely amazing and the research hospitals and, and universities are absolutely cutting edge and top-notch in the world. But then if you have sort of your run-of-the-mill diabetes, the U.S. might not be the best place for you to be and get care. And then, you know, for the book, I was trying to find out if anybody would have done a study on how much time people spend on arranging their healthcare. Because I think time is money too. Time is quality of life. Time is mm -hmm. efficiency. And I was thinking myself on the phone, trying to understand my like hospital bills for pregnancy or whatnot. And then you multiply that by all the people who have to do that. That is not efficient. So the question of whether this can be done in the U.S., um, I, I would be honest that I think it is hard to get people to believe that it's a worthy investment to start paying for health insurance in your taxes instead of paying it directly. Mm -hmm. Because Americans, of course, also do not like taxes. Nobody likes taxes, but uh, <laughs> do not like to pay more taxes. But having said that, I don't think technically in terms of a country size or population level or something... It, there's no reason why it couldn't be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that maybe like what you were saying earlier, if we, you know, because Americans will accept, you know, well, I pay taxes to pay for our roads, for the police force, for the fire department, 911, you know, essential services. If we just sort of psychologically say, well, healthcare is a human right. I mean, that's a hu that's a service. I think that just sort of if we could just sort of get over that psychological leap, Americans could you know, if we just started seeing it that way, because Americans will pay for essential services and their taxes. And as you say, it's often quite high taxes. And I sometimes think that there's like a PR problem with the way the U.S. tax code works, because it's so confusing when we do our taxes and you're checking which credits you got and things like that. And I think I think you pointed out in your book that, you know, there was like a study and people said, oh, did you take advantage of a government program? And they also oh, no, I did. But then when they went through and they said, oh, well, did you check this off when you did your taxes? And actually, they had gotten a decent amount of credits from the government, and which was basically a tax break, which was money in their pocket from the government. But it, it's very different than like receiving a check in the mail or the clarity of, well, here's your maternity leave policy. Like We just don't have these sort of very clear markers of what our taxes are doing to, for us. So I think that that's more, it's not just like, I hate to pay taxes. It's like I'm paying taxes and I'm still paying so much money in these other places. I'm still paying so much for childcare. I'm still paying so much for my insurance. And I think that is where the frustration comes from. So maybe, maybe there's an opportunity there just to like reframe what we're looking at. Yeah, and I think taxes are such an interesting point and I, I do write about them in the book more too. Because really, to talk about taxes, this is exactly what you need to talk about. What do you get for your taxes? Nobody likes to pay taxes just to throw money out the window. But in the Nordic countries, it is very clear what we get for our taxes. Every day when I take my daughter to her um, daycare and now preschool, I pay for it a little uh, every month, about 300 euros a month is, is the maximum that anybody has to pay for their childcare in Finland. But this is also on a sliding scale. So if you make very little money, you pay nothing. And I'm aware that this is subsidized by taxes. Uh, when I take my child to school and I don't pay anything for it, I'm aware that this is what taxes pay for me and for my family. When I go to the health clinic, 
I am aware that this is a service that I get that is paid out of taxes. So I feel like in the Nordic countries, you have, people typically have a very clear understanding what they're paying taxes for and what they get in return. Yeah, and I think this all speaks to what I think maybe was the most compelling argument you make in the book is that basically the way American society currently works is deeply incompatible with the deepest values that most Americans hold, which is independence and the American dream. You know, you can come to this country, you can work work hard, make a mark for yourself and make a life for yourself. And these core values, they're just not really attainable for a lot of people. And I think that is a huge, huge problem. And you argue that Finland and the other Nordic countries set up a basic safety net that basically allows independent flourishing and social mobility in a way that, at least as it stands right now, is very difficult in the U.S. Uh, sort of as we've, we've talked about, if you have the money and the connection, you can do very well in America. You can do very, very well. Um, and it's a nice place to live. But if for a lot of people, that's not attainable. And I think that that wealth gap is getting wider and the amount of people on the lower end of that wealth gap are getting a bigger group of people every year. And I think people are getting very aware of that and frustrated with that. But can you elaborate a little more on this idea about how basically our idea of like a nanny welfare state, whatever that Americans really are like, that's not for me, you know, getting stuff from the government, that's kind of a shameful thing. Um, but actually, we are in we are the ones who are in the state of dependency, whereas the Nordic countries are allowed to flourish independently. Yeah, this was really something that when I moved to America, it struck me how much Americans talk about freedom. Mm. In the Nordic countries, we don't talk about freedom so much. And then there was another contradiction that made me want to write the book that I didn't feel that free in the U.S. when I was living my life. And it didn't seem to me that people were that free for all the reasons that we've talked about here, that, that people were really dependent on the employers for more things than people are in the Nordic countries, for example, because of the way the healthcare works. Or otherwise, uh, in trying to make enough money to pay for your child's education and so on. So I didn't really feel like I was being, giving the freedom that America always talks about or, or the opportunities. And so while working on the book, I really realized that the way we think about the Nordic model, we think, and Americans think that it's a socialist nanny state that tells everybody what to do and, and kind of takes away people's own initiative. But in reality, what it does is it just sets the playing field more level, that everybody has the basic tools that they need, the education to fulfill their potential. And then you can craft your own path or, or life and you can succeed or not, and you can become very wealthy if you want to. And and if you don't want to, it's okay to live a sort of more normal life because you can, you can have a good life even if you don't make huge amounts of money. But there's plenty of people who, you know, have the inner drive to really want to succeed and, and focus. And there's a lot of successful uh, businesses coming out of, the, uh, out of the Nordic countries. But then also at the other end of the scale, I was looking at studies that were, for example, comparing countries on how children born into lowest income groups, how likely they were to be able to climb to the next group. So basically how, how likely they were to be able to make more money or, or be better educated than their parents. And actually in the Nordic countries, they were more likely to do so than in the U.S. 
So in the U.S., throughout history, that has been the great strength of America, that, that no matter what your background, through hard work, you've been able to make life better for yourself and for your cham family and rise above, in a way, your um, accidents of birth or, or circumstances in childhood. But that does not really happen anymore. That lift is sort of broken and it's harder and harder for Americans to actually be self-made men or women and have the true equality of opportunity that America is known for. Mm -hmm. So in that way, in some ways, you could think that the Nordic countries put into practice American values better than the United States does today mm -hmm. in supporting everybody's equality of opportunity. I, I can't remember which Brett prime minister it was, but you quoted, he said, you know, if you want the American dream, move to Finland. So, um, <laughs> yeah, something to be said there. So I do want to just bring up a few, a few little criticisms, which is I, I, after I read your book, I was ready to just book a one-way flight to Finland, move in, which is kind of hard to do, I realized. But, um, so, but for a little balance, I went and picked up the book, the almost nearly perfect people behind the myth of the Scandinavian utopia by Michael Booth. I don't know if you've read it, but it's a kind of a humorous take on policies and cultures in various Scandinavian countries. He's British, married to a Danish woman living in Copenhagen, and he describes the almost oppressively cozy culture that shies away from debate or conflict. And he wonders if Scandinavian countries are ranking so high in ha happiness simply out of politeness. Um, that it would be rude or imposing to claim to be unhappy. Um, he does clearly still have a very positive uh, view of Nordic society. He says it's a great way, place to raise his kids. But he does say it can be a little bit boring um, and even a little suffocating for anyone uh, a little bit eccentric. Um, is this a valid criticism? What do you think of this? In some ways it is, yeah. I read the book uh, already years ago, so I don't remember it so in detail, but I remember it being uh, being funny and in many ways true. I think many things can be true at the same time. Uh, the things I talk about, I think, are the Nordic strengths, the the well-being state, as I, as I call it in the book, the model that the Nordic countries have built that has really made these quite poor countries, not that Finland was very poor, not recently, but it has made it a wealthy, well-functioning country where life is safe and, and children have great opportunities and so on. So that, those are the strengths. And then when I talk about freedom and independence, I really talk about sort of um, autonomy in terms of being able to make choices uh, that are not dictated by how wealthy or capable your parents are or or which city you live in, or, or which school district you live in, and so on. But then it's a different thing to be eccentric, for example, to have variety. And I think that there are so many things that the United States excels in. And certainly that is, I think, one compared to um, the Nordic countries. That It is true that the Nordic countries, they're small countries. They don't have that many people. They're much more diverse now than they used to be, all of them. Um, but to compare them then to the United States, which is such a big, dynamic, bustling mix of people, they're very different, of course. And that, that I really loved about America. I really loved living there and feeling like the whole world is here. And I love the way Americans always take initiative. Like whenever, if you had something to complain about, basically the attitude is that, well, do something about it. 
And I think that's great. That is great. Um, and the Nordics can have a more of a view of like, oh, something's wrong with the system and mm. somebody should change the system. I think that is true. But at the same time, just in terms of overall quality of life, I think the Nordic countries have, have created a system that works really well. And if I could choose, I would take, you know, best sides of both worlds. I would really like to have the American friendliness and culture for conversation and so on. Nordics can be pretty quiet and <laughs> even rude people by American <laughs> standards, for sure. <laughs> and for example, for my daughter, um, she is going to go to school here in Finland. And um, But I would really like us to, at some point, live in the U.S. again. I would really like her to go to school in the U.S. as well, because I think American schools also have great strengths in, in encouraging children to be sort of brave in expressing their opinions and discussions and their creativity and so on. And that is not something that we excel so much in. So definitely there's many, many things that the U.S. could offer Nordics as well. Okay, well, I'm happy to end with at least a, a few a few notes here for us. So uh, trying to make life okay here in America, we do have, have some good things to root for here. So um, thank you so much, Anu, for taking the time. And I, I highly encourage everybody to read her book, The Nordic Theory of Everything in Search of a Better Life. So thank you so much, Anu. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. Here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. <laughs> <laughs>